Seneca Falls, New York, July 1848. Wesleyan Chapel, Elizabeth Cady Stanton, Lucretia Mott. A convention to discuss the social, civil, and religious condition and rights of woman. This brief description of the world-shaking event was sent to the local newspapers advertising the first women's rights convention. The convention lasted two days, July 19th and 20th. The meeting took place over six sessions, most of which were open only to women, and offered presentations, lectures, and multiple discussions about the role of women in society. At the end, two women, Elizabeth Cady Stanton and famed abolitionist Lucretia Mott, produced a document called the Declaration of Sentiments that laid out a list of resolutions that was meant to be discussed, debated, and put forward for signatures. Modeled after the Declaration of Independence, this document would serve as the foundation for women's rights in the United States and fuel a movement that would culminate in the ratification of the 19th Amendment, recognizing women's right to vote. For the American public, and even many historians, if they know anything about the beginnings of a women's rights movement in the United States, this narrative is the most commonly known, starting in Seneca Falls, focusing on Susan B. Anthony and Elizabeth Cady Stanton, and advocating white middle-class rights. But it's not actually the origin we think it is. This is Hindsight. I'm Dr. Robin Henry, a professor of history at Wichita State University, where I focus on the history of women, gender, and sexuality, and constitutional, legal, and civil rights histories in the United States. In 1920, the U.S. ratified the 19th Amendment recognizing women's voting rights. Over the next year, we will explore, commemorate, and celebrate the history of women's suffrage in the U.S. and discover what role voting played in the social, political, legal, and economic changes of the 20th and 21st centuries. Beginnings. For historians, knowing where to start a story, where the real root of a movement begins, is difficult to find, but it's critical to where the narrative goes. But if we don't start with the 19th Amendment, or even at Seneca Falls, where do we begin? The intellectual and organizational roots of the movement developed in the 18th and 19th centuries. The 1830s saw the first real organizing around women's rights. Conventions began at Seneca Falls, but also in Jefferson County, New York, Worcester, Massachusetts, Akron, Ohio, and countless other places where women, and sometimes men, gathered to discuss women's legal, social, and political rights. In the 1830s, women lived under the protections of coverture, a legal doctrine that, upon marriage, covered women from legal and political responsibilities in most cases. While this also placed responsibilities on the husband for their well-being, it meant a much more restricted public life for women that, by the middle of the 19th century, was beginning to feel stifling. As explained by director Ken Burns and author Elizabeth Griffith in the documentary Not For Ourselves Alone, in the eyes of the law, women were civilly dead. In the middle of the 19th century, women were, by custom, barred from the pulpit and the professions, prevented from attending college, and those who dared speak in public were thought indecent. By law, married women were prohibited from owning or inheriting property. In fact, wives were the property of their husbands, entitled by law to her wages and her body. You had no rights. That translates, no rights translates into 
no right to property, no right to sign contracts, no right to your children, no right to the clothes on your back. If you were so bold as to escape a dreadful marriage, you took your clothes, what, your one outfit with you, not your children, not your suitcase, you got nothing. No women could serve on a jury, and most were considered incompetent to testify. And the ballot by which women might have voted to improve their status was denied to them by law. Nowhere in America, nowhere in the world, did women have the right to vote. The women who began to organize for women's rights in the 1830s were responding to these legal, political, and economic circumstances. But we might assume women's status had always been this way, or even improved, and that simply is not the case. Native American women and women living in the British, Dutch, and Spanish North American colonies had different rights from American women of the 1830s. Americans hold a common belief that history is the story of circumstances that are always getting better, but as historian Sally Roche Wagner points out, American women's story is one of tremendous losses of liberty, regained and extended only through great struggle, and maintained only through continual vigilance. Evidence of more expansive roles and rights for women prior to 1830 abound. Native American women in the approximately 600 tribal nations of North America lived in matrilineal societies, meaning their kinship lines followed the women instead of the men. Women held diplomatic, political, and community power. In the family, women had rights over children, self, property, and within marriage. In the Dutch colony of New Netherland, women could own property, keep their names, write and sign contracts, own businesses, testify and witness in court, and choose a status of marriage called usus, in which she would keep all her independent legal rights, rejecting coverture. The first female landowner in the North American European colonies, Lady Deborah Moody, founded the community of Gravesend, Brooklyn, and was enfranchised by the New Netherland legislature in 1644, when most of her unpropertied male compatriots were not. In the Spanish North American colonies, women also owned and willed property. Lydia Chapin Taft became the first woman to reportedly vote in colonial British North America at a town meeting in Uxbridge in Massachusetts Colony. This was a limited honor the town bestowed on her as the widow of Josiah Taft under the manifest of no taxation without representation. In fact, there's evidence throughout the British colonies that this connection between owning property and suffrage allowed for a small number of women to cast ballots in town elections, though the record is not consistent. Between 1776 and 1807, single New Jersey women who owned property could and did vote. In fact, in 1790, the New Jersey legislature clarified the law, rewording it to read he or she, making it absolutely clear that certain women had the right to vote. In 1807, the Democratic-Republican-controlled state legislature, in an effort to stifle Federalist voting blocs, voted to restrict voting to property-owning white men taking away the suffrage rights of both white women and black men. After the American Revolution, female political writers, such as Judith Sargent Murray and Mercy Otis Warren, advocated for equal rights, if not for all women, at least for those who were white and owned property, like male voters. Murray, in particular, compared women's dependent and unequal status to that of the British North American colonies under the crown. In her groundbreaking 1790 essay, On the Equality of the Sexes, she argued for spiritual and intellectual equality between men and women, and was critical of the traditional male superiority that kept women from full educational opportunities and, by extension, full political, legal, and economic rights. 
By the 1830s, these limited and irregular rights, along with strident conversations on equality and autonomous rights, had all but disappeared. Charged with the task of raising the next generation of American patriots, women focused efforts on developing their role within the home and as the safe haven for men. Voting took place in dirty saloons and assembly halls filled with men, fueled by alcohol and rowdy partisanship, places dangerous to the well-being and reputations of middle-class women. Instead of moving the polling places, men simply justified protecting women from the suffrage for their own good. Amazingly, not everyone agreed that this was the best circumstance for women. In fact, European visitors, in particular from France and England, were shocked to take note of the diminished rights women held in the United States. The French political philosopher Alexis de Tocqueville, in his 1840 essay, How Americans Understand the Equality of the Sexes, wrote that Americans do not think that man and woman have either the duty or the right to perform the same offices. He went on to say that while white, wealthy American women hold a lofty, prosperous position to be envied, the United States had bestowed on all women, regardless of race, class, or circumstance, quote, a narrow circle of domestic life, and that their situation is, in some respects, one of extreme dependence. So what changed? What happened in the 1820s and 1830s that sparked greater discussion and action on women's rights? Dr. Lori Ginsburg is a professor of women's history at Pennsylvania State University. I spoke with her about the organizational origins of the movement. I did want to start out by asking, kind of for a 21st century audience, what do you think that we need to consider um, about the 19th century women's rights movement that has maybe gotten lost in cross-century translation? I think that probably the most important thing that I try to get across to audiences and students and others is that the women's movement originated, as I'm sure you know, in the movement against slavery. And when we talk about it now, it seems so obvious that, of course, we oppose slavery and, of course, we support women's rights to property and education and the vote and so on. And what really is important to stress to audiences today is how radical and, in many circles, outrageous these demands were. I mean, the demand to immediately emancipate slaves led to violence and restrictions of free speech and all kinds of marginalization of people who advocated for that cause. And it's just really important to remember that these people were considered the lunatic fringe of their time. These were not considered safe or respectable or mainstream causes. Yeah, I always try to emphasize also many of those aspects, but also just what a slight sliver of a minority they were in the population. Absolutely. I mean, among white people in the North, it was a very minuscule percentage of people who ever would have advocated publicly to end slavery. Probably most Northerners thought slavery wasn't great, although certainly they benefited financially from the expansion of slavery and the rise of industrial production in the North. But, you know, the, actually to, to get up and oppose slavery and to advocate for freeing slaves, especially immediately as the followers of leaders like William Lloyd Garrison and Frederick Douglass did, was really considered an extreme, marginal, and outrageous position held by very few people. Definitely the women activists coming out of abolition is one that I think for 19th century historians seems to be part of that milieu and that world of 19th century change, whether it comes from the Second Great Awakening or um, just simply a turning toward reform and activism. But what is what do you think most of the early activist sentiment came from? Where do you think that these women found it in them to either be part of the abolitionist movement or then transform into a women's rights 
advocate and activist. I think that you're right that for many of them it was the religious impulse that came out of the Second Great Awakening, this sense that you could perfect society, that through individual, personal transformation, you could convert yourself and everyone in your circle and in the wider society and make a perfect world or as nearly a perfect world as they can imagine. I think they had a really utopian vision of what moral change involved. To us, to our sensibilities, some of that doesn't seem so progressive. These people advocated temperance, you know, and, and not prohibition so much, but restrictions on alcohol consumption. Uh, they were deeply religious. To many of us, this doesn't, their narrow moral sense of how people should behave and interact doesn't seem um, appropriate or progressive to our way of thinking. But in their time, I think they used their religious fervor, many of them, to advocate for what they viewed as the most, I don't want to say equal, but the most moral and just society they could imagine. And I also kind of want to talk a little bit about some of the almost nuts and bolts organizational training, because I think this is another aspect that people don't quite get, that speaking in public or circulating a petition. I mean, I think you could probably open up Facebook or your email and find half a dozen petitions ready for you to sign. But these were also fairly radical. Right. I think that just the act of women being involved in the moral cause of abolition got them engaged in activities petitioning, speaking publicly, organizing meetings, eventually lobbying politicians, and so on, that in the act of doing those things, they moved women's rights along because they were being present, they were being visible, they were being active. And in, I think that the women who we could see as the founders of the women's movement, which is not the same as saying they were the first people to ever think of the idea of women, to having, women having rights, but the people who initiated what became the women's movement were women, some of them quite famous, Sarah and Angelina Grimke, Lucretia Mott, who were Quakers involved in the anti-slavery movement, who, when more conservative men tried to limit their speaking and acting on behalf of that moral cause, decided that they needed to speak out about their rights as women to participate in that cause. And to a large extent, Quakers like Lucretia Mott, Sarah and Angelina Grimke, who came from the most egalitarian religious tradition that was present at the time, felt they needed to speak out more publicly about their very right to assert themselves as moral activists. These early conversations and actions helped form the foundation of the women's rights movement. As anti-slavery activists, these mostly northern women developed the public speaking and organizational skills necessary to establish their own independent movement. However, through the Civil War, the anti-slavery and women's movements would be intertwined through the people involved in both movements, but also through the questions about freedom, rights, and autonomy that both movements raised. While historians recognize the importance of these writers and activists to the development of the women's movement, none of this gives us a solid, fixed point of a beginning in the way the 1848 convention at Seneca Falls eventually became. Since the 1890s, when Susan B. Anthony, Elizabeth Cady Stanton, and Matilda Gage wrote the first history of the women's movement, Seneca Falls has been the starting point in textbooks and the national story for the women's movement. So what is the history of Seneca Falls and the beginning of the women's movement? The basic narrative begins in 1840 when Elizabeth Cady Stanton accompanies her husband Henry Stanton, a committed and active abolitionist, to the World Anti-Slavery Convention in London. While the abolitionist movement in the United States had incorporated women, allowing them to attend as equals, to circulate petitions, and to give speeches, the London abolitionists did not recognize the American female delegates as equals, requiring them to sit in the balcony and not speak. 
Famed abolitionist and equalitist William Lloyd Garrison was outraged and chose to make a public declaration of solidarity and sat with the women who he often referred to as the great silent army of abolition. For Elizabeth Cady Stanton, this snub by the British made an impression, and she decided with Lucretia Mott that something needed to be done. Eight years later, Stanton and Mott advertised a convention to discuss the social, civil, and religious conditions and rights of women. The convention was held in the Wesleyan Chapel in Seneca Falls on July 19th and 20th, 1848. Though the first day was designated as women only, approximately 300 women and men attended, including the African-American abolitionist Frederick Douglass. While the delegates discussed a wide range of subjects, by the end they produced a document called the Declaration of Sentiments. Modeled after the Declaration of Independence, it declared that, quote, all men and women were created equal. But what did that equality include? The 68 women and 32 men who signed the document supported a woman's right to her wages and greater legal rights, including custodial rights over her children and greater access to divorce, as well as married women's property rights and access to more and better education in the professions. In his newspaper, The North Star, Frederick Douglass declared it to be a product of the, quote, grand movement for attaining the civil, social, political, and religious rights of women. The last and most controversial right in the document was suffrage. Even for some of the women in attendance, this final point was too radical. Some feared this radicalism would keep people from supporting the other petitions for rights. Surrounding newspapers were also critical, declaring suffrage to be unnatural, shocking, and serving a small number of radical women at the expense of women's appropriate duties. While Seneca Falls and the Declaration of Sentiment appear to be firm beginnings to a larger movement, historians have begun to question Seneca Falls not as an important event, but as the important event to begin the women's rights movement. And there's a lot of room to question Seneca Falls as the singular point of origin to a complex, multi-century movement. Again, Lori Ginsburg. I think that the women in the late 1830s who were involved in anti-slavery and who were attacked and marginalized for speaking to sexually mixed audiences or for when white and black women walked arm in arm to Pennsylvania Hall and the building was mobbed and burned in reaction to their activism, I think those women really began to stand up for women's rights in the context of working to end slavery. So I would say the late 1830s is the important starting point for the particular movement that developed in the United States. Seneca Falls was not the first time that women demanded their right to full civil and political equality. As you said, I've written about six women in Jefferson County, New York, and I'm sure they were not the first or only ones who in 1846 petitioned their state constitutional convention for full political and equal rights. I think that the Seneca Falls origin story is a compelling one. It's very dramatic. You know, it's very exciting. It focuses on this woman, this young woman, Elizabeth Cady Stanton, who was presumably bored and exhausted from being a mother of three boys in a small town and wanted to do something to express her discontent with her more limited role and her frustrations at not getting the education that her brothers did and so on. But more importantly, and Lisa Tetro shows this brilliantly in her book about the movement's origin, Stanton and Anthony, in later work writing The History of Women's Suffrage, and in gathering all of the sources they could find about that movement that they helped found, helped shape an origin story very intentionally that placed them at the center of the movement, placed their kind of women's rights activism at the core of the movement's origin, although Anthony was not actually at Seneca Falls, and 
placed their own priorities as the center of all women's rights activism. And historians know it was more complicated than that, but a compelling origin story, and this is certainly not only true of the 19th century women's movement, we see this with other movements as well, a compelling origin story is a great way to establish a particular kind of agenda to assert your goals as the most obvious and universal ones, and in some ways to limit the kind of complicated historical story we can tell. What do you think putting kind of Seneca Falls in that pride of place results in, in terms of um, maybe more negative aspects of putting it as an origin story? What are some of the things that might fall away from the movement? Well, the convention at Seneca Falls in the summer of 1848 made a long list of demands. The only one that was apparently not unanimously voted for was demanding the elective franchise for women, the right to vote. Stanton, who helped write the Declaration of Sentiments, that was the founding document of that convention, believed that it was her own bravery and radicalism that asserted women's right to vote as the central and most important demand. I don't actually think that's true. I think that abolitionists were conflicted about whether women should demand the right to vote because many of them, Quakers as well as what were called non-resistance abolitionists, no government abolitionists, disdained voting, thought that it was not worth activists in a moral cause's energy to spend time on electoral voting, which obviously involved compromise. And Stanton shaped her discussion of Seneca Falls to make it look like this was the central demand. I think that what gets lost is that most of the demands that were made at Seneca Falls ended up being gained by at least middle-class white women over the next 50 or 60 years. Property rights, greater education, access to more professions, and so on, and the vote was left as the single thing that seemed out of reach for such a long time and for which women worked really hard for 70 years to accomplish. Seneca Falls didn't demand everything, and except for Frederick Douglass, as far as we know, he was the only African-American at the meeting, and it left out other people's very real and pressing needs in the case of African-American women, aside from ending slavery, which the Seneca Falls Convention did not explicitly mention, although everyone who attended was an anti-slavery activist in one form or another. It didn't talk about protecting black women against sexual assault, against having their children taken from them, against having no rights to speak and be heard to any public official. You know, it didn't speak about the depredations of slavery and racism in the North. So... It was limited in that way, and by focusing on Seneca Falls as the be-all and end-all of the origin of women's rights, we accept Stanton's agenda as the most important set of demands and priorities for the movement. Ginsburg's observation that the Declaration of Sentiments focuses primarily on the rights of middle-class white women reflected the contemporary criticism by African-American advocate Sojourner Truth. In a speech delivered at the Ohio Women's Rights Convention in Akron in 1851, Truth addresses the double bind of race and gender that govern black women's lives. She argued black women, especially enslaved women, did not have rights over their own bodies, their families, and their labor, in ways many white women couldn't conceive. Before we hear Sojourner Truth's address, I want to break away from our narrative a bit. Obviously, there are no recordings of her delivering this speech in 1851, like most historical figures, we don't really know what she sounded like. Even worse, Truth's specific Lower Dutch dialect, a holdover from New York's days as New Netherland, had disappeared before voice recording, and so we don't even know what she might have sounded like. 
However, the Sojourner Truth Project in Detroit, Michigan, has done a really interesting thing. They have recorded black women from the post-colonial Dutch diaspora reciting Truth's address. While we might not know exactly what Truth sounded like, we can hear possible versions of Dutch dialect that attempt to reclaim her speech patterns and sounds that would have undoubtedly added to her delivery. So here are parts of two versions of Truth's address. First, we hear Mynalba Abbey Carolina Irons, a fiscal economist and aspiring actor from the Dutch Caribbean nation of Curaçao. Second, a woman who goes by ST, who was born in Suriname and grew up in Rotterdam, the Netherlands. First, here's Irons. May I say a few words? I want to say a few words about this matter. I am a woman's right. I have as much muscle as any man and can do as much work as any man. I have plucked and chopped and mowed and husked and can any man do more than that? I have heard about the sexes being equal. I can carry as much as any man and can eat as much too if I can get it. I am as strong as any man that is now. As for intellect, all I can say is if a woman have a pint and a man a quart, why can't she have her little pint full? You need not be afraid to give us our rights for fear we will take too much, for we can't take much more than our pint will hold. The poor men seem to be all in confusion, and they don't know what to do. Why, children, if you have woman's rights, give it to her, and you will feel better. You have your own rights, and there will be so much trouble. Sojourner Truth argued for women's rights that paralleled white women's demands, but included particular references to the physical labor and mistreatment that African-American women experienced, especially under enslavement. While there could be common ground among women, Truth's speech does remind us that not all women have the same experiences. For the larger women's rights movement, this is important and often left out. Truth's womanhood as a black, formerly enslaved woman challenges the assumption that white, middle-class women and their rights represent the whole. But like Seneca Falls, the significance of Truth's speech to the larger women's movement might be more historical hindsight. According to historian Nell Irvin Painter, Truth's speech was first printed in 1851 by her friend, the Reverend Marius Robinson, in the anti-slavery newspaper, The Bugle, but it received much wider publicity with a republishing and near-complete rewriting in 1863 by the activist Frances Dana Barker Gage, a white woman. Painter says it was Gage who supplied the commonly known title, Ain't I a Woman, to Truth's previously titleless speech, a title that is more likely a dialect rendering of Truth's famous question, Aren't I a Woman, which is a part of the speech that may not even be from the original. Even Robinson's printing of the speech might not be accurate because of Truth's lower Dutch dialect. The uncertain parts of Truth's speech and its role in 1851 speak to the larger question of how women's history, and really all history, is written after the fact. It is sometimes difficult to discern what is important in the moment from what we, with the advantage of hindsight, can see or want to see as important. Truth's question, aren't I a woman, hits at the center of enslaved women's experiences. The fact that a white woman might have added it later speaks to the complex and often uncomfortable relationship of race, gender, class, and power in writing historical narrative. 
Regardless, Sojourner Truth becomes and remains a strong and active voice for women of color during and after the Civil War. As for placing Seneca Falls as the origin of the women's movement, historian Lisa Tetralt argues that Seneca Falls has become American myth. In her book, The Myth of Seneca Falls, she argues that it was not until after the Civil War, into the latter part of the 19th century, when Susan B. Anthony and Elizabeth Cady Stanton were writing their account of the women's movement, that Seneca Falls became the origin of the movement. And this is where the motivations behind Anthony and Stanton's writings appear. A history reveals complexity and sometimes conflicting ideas. Not all historians agree on the significance and order of events. But for a movement, the origins need to be clearer and simpler. Placing Seneca Falls as that beginning achieved this simplicity. For Stanton, Anthony, and Gage, choosing to start their narrative with the 1848 convention gives participants a specific moment to look back on, a list of rights to refer to, and a group of women and men to feel inspired by. The authors made choices based on what was important to the women's rights movement in the 1880s and 1890s, in particular, the incorporation of Southern women and the rise of temperance. These influences meant that more radical women who had advocated for free love, birth control, and companionate marriages, as well as African-American women, were written out of the founding of the movement. Seneca Falls, one of the dozens of women's rights conventions, fit the needs of a growing movement in providing an origin story. So where does that leave us now, 172 years after the Seneca Falls Convention? What narrative do we believe? What starting point do we select? How do these choices affect what we know about women's history in the United States? Once again, Lori Ginsburg. I think the main benefit of commemoration is not to celebrate, but to reconsider and rethink our history, to make it more complicated, to recognize that historians disagree with each other, that historical work is It involves interpretation. It doesn't only involve finding new facts. Finding new facts is great, but it involves historical interpretation. Inherently, it's part of the work that we do. And so part of what I hope comes from this commemoration is that people will recognize that historians do differ in their interpretation from one another and that a more complicated history is better for all of us. I think that it's truer, but I also think it reminds us that simple bumper sticker kind of responses to our history and statues do not replace complicated historical analysis and interpretation. Because it's the story of many different people who disagree with each other. Some of them make morally reprehensible choices, even though when we like some things about them. There really aren't heroes or heroines who are perfect. And we need to stop looking for those. And making, we need to stop making statues to people that suggest that we think they're perfect and make statues to things that make us think in more complicated and nuanced ways about who we are as a people. On the next episode of Hindsight, we'll dive into some of the movement's personalities, the famous ones like Elizabeth Cady Stanton and Susan B. Anthony, and some, including African-American women, you may not have heard of. We'll also explore the impact of the Civil War on the women's rights movement, the role of Kansas, my state, in the post-war suffrage debates, and the conflict over race and suffrage that broke the movement and many friendships apart. (laughs) ¶¶